Good morning. Well, I have the privilege today to share a short message um, of what I've entitled The Great Exchange. By way of introduction, those of, us, those of you who know our family, you know that Andre um, is currently living at home with us. And at the moment, we, he is about to fly up to go to Auckland to go and join Luke, who is at a seven or nine months, I think it is, of training with an with a organisation called VEN, which is the theological arm of Maxim Institute. Now, as Andre's parents, we have the privilege of, I was thinking it's a bit like um, when Ruth was round the, the field where the harvest and the corn was, and she was picking up the little gleanings round the edges. Whatever Andre's doing in his life theologically, we have the privilege, Pete and I, of being able to sneak in conversations and listen to things and ask him what he's been doing this week or this day. And he's actually up there to do a couple of days, intense, um, but... Uh, life-producing theology on the medieval spirituality, and in particular, um, around the life of Luther. We've learned some interesting facts as we've been talking to Andre. We've learned some interesting facts that um, when um, Luther actually lived, not too far away from his timing, was um, Calvin. And the two of them had quite different um, concepts of things that were being wrestled theologically at that stage in history. How much of all this spiritual stuff is God's part, and how much is my part? Now, out of interest, we found that one of them was a lawyer, the other was an Augustinian monk. One had a very congenial and likable personality, the other had a very sharp tongue. You'd be surprised at what we found out about that one. One of them was French, the other was German, and one was one generation separated from the other. By way of introduction, we have learnt a lot, and some of that is tied in with my message this morning. Currently, I've been listening to people talking about their life verses. You know when you get to the end of a year and everybody starts sort of summarising what the year's been like? I've heard people exchanging life verses. What's been a really significant verse this year for you in your life? I heard one lady use a scripture in Psalm 116 verse 2 that talked about God bending down or stooping to listen to her cry or to listen to our cries. What a wonderful imagery of God, almighty God, stooping down and taking the time out to listen to what's on my heart. In the U version, which is an electronic version online, and with an app that people are downloading by the millions, um, there is a verse that's been downloaded and marked the most of all scriptures this year. Any idea what that might look like? John 3.16? No. It's in Isaiah. It's Isaiah 41 verse 10. That verse that says, Fear not, I'm with you. Don't be dismayed, for I am your God. I'll strengthen you and sustain you, whatever you're walking through. I found out by, by preparing um, my message that, my goodness, it used to be a time when there was only a few translations of Scripture, you know, the King James, the NIV, and the Living. Now there are multitudes of it. That verse, in another version, says, Don't worry, I'm with you. Don't be afraid, I'm your God. I will, I will make you strong and I'll help you. I will support you with my right hand and bring you victory. That's from what's called the ERV. 
the easy-to-read version. Wouldn't you believe it? The easy-to-read version is now available. And then there's verses like Galatians 1, Galatians 3, verses 1 to 3. Oh, you foolish Galatians. Oh, who has bewitched you? Who's cast a spell upon you? It's like Paul saying, I'm pulling my hair out. You started the race so well, and somewhere along the line, you've lost the plot. You've got off track. The Phillips translation says, I quite like this. Oh, you dear idiots of Galatia, who saw Jesus Christ, the crucified, so plainly, who's been casting a spell on you? I will ask you one simple question. Did you receive the Spirit of God by trying to keep the law or by believing the message of the gospel? Surely you can't be so idiotic that to think that a man begins his spiritual life in the Spirit and then goes on and tries to complete it by outward observances. The message today is the great exchange. You might think I've got the wrong season because it's focused very much on the death of Jesus. You're probably thinking at the moment of gruelling journeys on a donkey, a baby in a major, manger of hay, stars in the sky that are guiding wise men, and the light of the world coming to our world. Do you know in past history, church history actually didn't celebrate Christmas anywhere near as much as they continually celebrated Easter. Now it's fine, it's great to celebrate Christmas because this is when this, this baby was born that was the light of the world. But throughout history, that's been sort of kept here and the big one has been Easter. Make no mistake that this little baby that we're celebrating came marked with a destiny from the start to the end of his life to redeem the world and make it possible to reconnect with God. Why is message, my message this morning, where has it come out of? My message has come out of the fact that it's ever so easy to be right in the main but not in the whole. That we get a lot of stuff spiritually and by and large we've got it right but one or two things at the very core of our faith is not quite right and not quite in place. Oh, you foolish Galatians, you started so well, and yet somewhere along the line you've lost the plot and distorted what I've done for you. Theologically, we have very big terms like redemption and atonement, contrasted with sanctification and transformation in our lives. Once again, what God does for us that we can't add to and what we need to do to live out our faith. But so often it gets merged together in a murky middle where we actually lose the joy of our faith. For spiritual truth to be made real and relevant in my life and in yours is always a struggle. What I'm going to share with you today is a little part of my testimony of a struggle in a period of my life many years ago, but for a substantially far too long a period, where I had to struggle to come to grips with these great truths 
of Scripture about what God has done that I can't add anything to and what is my part moving on from that. My message, another one into next year, will probably be on this side. Today I want to concentrate on this one. Someone said you cannot think yourself clear of a spiritual muddle. You have to obey it clear. In intellectual matters, you can think things out and just go deeper and deeper and deeper. But in spiritual matters, if you don't get things right and it doesn't come from a revelation, all your thinking ends up getting you into a bundle of cotton wool. If there's something upon which God has put pressure, his pressure on us in our spiritual life, we need to obey him. We need to bring into captivity all the other thoughts that are trying to say different things about who God is, and we need to just go out there in faith and be obedient. And then, in spiritual matters, things become crystal clear like that. And as I said, I'm going to be sharing a part of my my journey where I thought I had it to add to what Christ had done on the cross. I had to measure up to something. And I would get myself into tangle after tangle when I had just missed the mark by a fraction or a country mile about how terrible it was and how could I ever pay back God back for the favour for what he had done. Nowhere in Scripture does God hold us responsible for having an inherited nature of sin. He does not condemn us for that. And he does not condemn us that in our humanity we aren't always able to do things right. That our thoughts and our actions can often miss what we know we should have been doing. The condemnation when it comes, when I realise that Jesus, this little baby in a manger, has come to deliver me and make me right with God with nothing I can add to that, and I just receive that as a gift in my life. My issue, or my journey, involved the fact that, and I know that in an audience like that I did not stand alone, and I do not stand alone in this, that I received the great gift of redemption and being made right with God with a great sense of relief and satisfaction and joy and celebration in my life. But then I found myself, as I went a bit further, somehow turning that around and trying to pay God back for the favour. Received with great joy that there was nothing I could add to that great gift of salvation, absolutely and totally complete. And then busying myself like a little beaver to try and prove to God and pay him back for the favour. It would get me into bundles of cotton wool when I was in my early 20s and probably eight to my early 30s. I'm a bit disappointed that today we don't have the couple of rows filled there with the church and the wild young people. Zealous, committed. Do you know, that's where I sat at that same age. I would be anywhere to listen to more of what I could do to go on in my Christian walk with God. And, do you know, some of the struggles that I had, they, they, they come from that zealousness, that desire to please, that wonderful passion for the things of God. And it often can happen when we're young. And at that stage, it can just be distorted. And instead of a joyous faith that we carry, it ends up being one of effort where we're trying constantly to reach up to a mark and show God that we want to pay him back for the favour. 
My theory is actually, in the medical field, it's actually known that there are some medical conditions that actually only apply to certain patient cohorts. Now, in certain cases, there are some conditions, for example, um, anorexia nervosus, that horrible condition where we think we're, we're fat and we're as thin as can be and we get a distorted picture of ourselves. Another one is postnatal depression. These sort of conditions can often hit a cohort of patients. Speak to any psychologist or psychiatrist and they can tell you like that where it fits. It's often, unfortunately, white, middle-class, middle-every, people who it doesn't hit the people who are uh, desperately trying in poverty to make ends meet and make sense of their lives it just seems to hit a certain group of people and my theory is that in spiritual um, terms often this desire to want to please God instead of just accepting what he's done in faith and getting on with a joyous celebration of his sacrifice often hits the young or the zealous, the ones that really, truly want to go on with God and change the world. And as I say, I'd love these young people to hear my message again, just to make sure that there's no way that they're going down that path instead of the path of just standing back and accepting all that Jesus has done. I've found in my friends and those around me that often those who really have the biggest score um, to settle with God, like their lives were in a complete and utter mess before they came to faith, they're the ones that seem to grasp this really quickly. They get it sorted, they put it aside, they celebrate the fact that, my goodness, I could never go back and just repent of every single thing I'd ever thought or done because there's so much of it and I was so off track. They seem to get it right. I love the Apostle Paul's story. You know, heading in this direction, vile, um, uh, angry, um, violent man, couldn't be further away from the ways of God. And then on a jolly donkey, he sees the light, falls to the ground, is blinded. And did you ever hear him go back over again? Oh, me. Oh, poor me. No, he got on with his life and celebrated. My goodness, I'm free. All of my sin, all the stuff I've done, and all the stuff I'll ever do in the future because I'm human is all taken care of by the cross. I love his story. There are two enemies of our souls at work. One is from without and one is from within. We focus so much on the without, the enemy of our souls. Now, it's true, Satan would love to take spiritual truth and distort it just a fraction and take the real marvelous truth out of it. And he is always at work, believe me, to try and do that. But, you know, and what happens, and I learnt that in my early 20s and early 30s for that 10-year period, that when Satan puts you on an elevated place, he makes you skew your ideas of what holiness is beyond what flesh and blood could ever bear. And it becomes a spiritual acrobatic performance where we're sort of pitched on the top here, um, wondering whether at one stage we're going to think something or do something, and then we're going to feel just dreadful because we missed the mark. We're sitting up there on the pinnacle of that, where God has, as this says, we, we feel like we're poised and we dare not move, but when God elevates us by our, his grace, instead of finding we're on a pinnacle at the top, clinging furiously in case we fall, we find we're in a great and broad playing field. 
We know that God loves us. We know that he's paid the sacrifice and we can get on with our lives on a broad playing field with joy in our hearts instead of anxiety about whether we're doing things or being right. I, as I said, that's the enemy from outside. The enemy from within, in my story, is, was the greatest enemy the greatest enemy. I was my own greatest enemy. I love this verse. This is a life verse of mine. Isaiah 50 verse 11. It was for that period of time. Listen carefully, all of you who kindle your own fire, devising your own man-made way of salvation, who surround yourself with torches and walk by the light of your own self-made fire and among the torches that you yourself are setting ablaze. But this you will have from my hand, and this was my story, this will you have from the hand of God himself. You will lie down in a place of torment and you will constantly be in a place of anxiety and agitation. Strong words from a loving God, but just like Paul was on that track, oh, you foolish Galatians, sit down, let me talk to you. Get this right for the first time in your life. Don't go round trying to add to the favor of God and try and please him. He loves you. He loves you immensely. He gave his son completely and totally to pay the price, not for the past, but for the present and for the future. What I'm sharing with you has come out of a painful journey. I can't, I, sometimes I can't remember what that almost felt like because it's so distant in my past. But believe me, it was not a good place to be. I was a middle child and I came from a middle-class family. Um, I was a bit of a perfectionist, born at heart, and a bit of a sensitive soul to spiritual things. I could not get enough. I came to faith at the age of eight, and I still remember the moment, and I still remember the joy. And I went home as a little eight-year-old, and I used to love embroidery and things. I wish I'd kept it. And I embroidered a little cross and some little hearts or something to celebrate the fact that I had come to faith myself. That's the kind of kid I was. But then, as I say, um, easily, enemy from without and enemy from within comes to destroy that peace. Every generation has a, or a group that sort of is called the holiness movement, okay? As I said, everything's a bit of tension. What's God part, God's part? What's mine? And over church history, we go in this direction, and then we go back to this direction, and we go swinging backwards and forwards. And every generation in, in church history, you'll find a group that becomes sort of the holiness movement, which is focused on our own personal cleanliness and what we must do to please God. You know, in many ways, the Desert Fathers, they decided to leave the world behind I can't do it there. I'm just distracted. I have these thoughts and I do these things. So why don't we go off to the desert and live alone and watch the stars and just meditate on scripture and not have relationships we have to work out and not have normal things that we have to struggle with. Well, when Peter and I were young, we were young and zealous. We sold all that we had, which wasn't a lot. And we went off to join an organization. It happens to have been Youth with a Mission. 
Okay, every once again, there's always these organisations that grab and, and um, allow opportunities for people like us to go and spend time and grow in God. The problem was, at that stage, the organisation had a little bit of a twist that they wanted to correct, and it was sort of a little bit like the old holiness, the holiness movement, where there was a real intense focus on your personal cleanliness before God. Right now, at this moment in time, what were your thoughts? What have you done? Bring it to the cross. Not only bring it to the cross, but we had these sessions, and those of you who have been in YWAM, Court and please believe me, it's a great organisation, openness and brokenness sessions where we would sit down and people would bear their soul. Oh my goodness, I had to close my ears sometimes. It left me so disturbed um, at listening to what people were talking about. And now for most people, and like Peter, it just went over the top of his head. He could sort of, um, he could sort of like process it in a different way to me. But for me, it made me want to focus in on my own personal cleanliness so that I knew that today when I woke, I had everything sort of settled between me and God. And it, it caused in me a tremendous anxiety and that situation of feeling like I was on a spiritual pinnacle. At any stage, I could fall out of favor with God. When Satan puts you in an elevated place, as I said, you end up doing spiritual acrobatics. You can't think yourself out of a spiritual muddle. You must simply obey the truth. I would spend many days feeling out of sorts with myself and out of sorts with God and I'd be listing all these things that I felt just muddied the waters and made me no longer worthy. And then, do you know what would bring me out of that? And I'd love to think it was within five minutes, but it wasn't because I was so distorted on this issue. It's a passage in James and James... um, James 3 verse 17, and I would bring back a measuring stick after days and days of anxiety and feeling ridiculously overwhelmed with condemnation. I would go back to a scripture in James that lists what wisdom is like. And I would have this little list and I would say, what I'm listening to right now is it wisdom. If it's wisdom from God, it'll have certain characteristics. And I encourage you, if this is an area that you could possibly be tempted to distort and get out of kilter in your spiritual walk. The passage is James 3 verse 17. And it's out of the Amplified, but it says, Wisdom from above is first of all pure and undefiled. Then it's peace-loving. It's courteous and considerate. It's gentle it's willing to yield to wisdom and to it's real sorry it's willing to yield to reason it's full of compassion and good fruits and i'd come back and realize that what i was listening to didn't have any of those characteristics and i'd say god this is not wisdom from you i give up the battle and instantly not 5 minutes later and not a day later i would get back into a place of peace Because when God speaks to us, it is peace-loving. It's gentle. It doesn't come with a big dump on us and make us feel absolutely overwhelmed by our guilt. It has a gentle approach. It is full of compassion, and it leads us somewhere fruitful. A good verse to remember. Then came the great 
finale, I call it, in my, that period of my life. I can't say that I've heard the audible voice of God many times in my life, and I almost dare to say, not call it that, but to me it was. There was one time in my life when I was 19, sitting in a very, um, by myself somewhere, and audibly I heard God say, Kerry, I love you. This was the other time that God spoke to me, probably towards the end of my 20s, where he said, Kerry, was, not, was my sacrifice of Jesus on the cross not enough for you? And it broke in the core of me the fact that I was rejecting, actually, all that Jesus had done by trying to pay him back the favour. An accumulation of a number of years of struggle and hearing the voice of God saying, was my sacrifice not enough? You're throwing it back in my face every time you go down this pathway. You're throwing it like mud back at me and saying, great, your sacrifice covered all these people in this room, but it failed to get and cover me. And for some reason that broke a spiritual bondage over my life and led me to a life of freedom that I've never gone back into that space again. And my passion is, as I say, young people, get the stuff right from the start. What has God done for you? What is your part in this? And when it comes to the cross and all that Jesus has done, we have nothing that we can add to it. Nothing we can add to it. To know whether or not, for example, you may have a tendency in that direction is to ask yourself last time you actually missed the mark, what was your response? Was it one to fall down with great sense of condemnation and guilt because you said the wrong word, you acted wrongly? Or was it one where you just responded back to God and says, hey, God, you're right. Wow, I don't want to do that again. Please forgive me for that and let me just stand up again and get on with life. Or when God tries to correct you, do you just fall and tumble into the cycle of feeling absolutely like you've just overwhelmingly lost the plot. Are you reacting like a slave or a son or a daughter of God? What's your response? Like a slave and its master or like a father and a daughter or a son? There was another man, as I said, sitting around our dining room table that Andre's been talking about, that was so amazed after a similar pathway that he had trod, not unlike mine, he was so amazed at the revelation of the great exchange at the cross, my sin for God's forgiveness, that he went down and nailed his thesis to the community notice board. Yes, that was Martin Luther. He was the Augustinian German monk who was a generation before Calvin, who was, Calvin himself was a French lawyer, and Calvin had the more amenable personality, and Luther was known for a very sharp tongue. If you got out of sorts with him, if he wanted to defend something, my goodness, even Andre last night was saying, I couldn't believe what I heard him say as I've read this. But at the core of it, he was just passionate to bring back into balance um, the whole of the a theological truth of what Jesus has done on the cross. 
Never build a case. This is something interesting. Never build a case for the forgiveness of God for your sin because God is a loving Father. He will forgive us because he loves us. If he, if he could forgive us um, because he loves us, it would make the cross completely unnecessary. The forgiveness of God for your sin and for mine is a divine intervention of grace. The fatherhood of God could not override the justice of God. He had to be a just God and he had to have that penalty paid in full. Without the atonement of what this little baby Jesus has done for us when he grew up and went to the cross, God could not forgive our sin. He had to satisfy both his justice and the atonement. One of the examples I actually was thinking of recently is Abraham going up to sacrifice Isaac on the, on the um, altar. Now, he heard from God that he was to take his son and to take him up onto the altar and to sacrifice the most precious thing he had on the, on the altar. And what happened when he had that knife ready? When he was absolutely ready to sacrifice and, and amend God and become favorable with God, at that very moment, God said, now stop, Abraham. Abraham. I've taken you this far to teach you a lesson. Have a look in the brambles. There is a perfect lamb whose life is to be slain instead of your son's. And so often we get taken up thinking that we have to do something to prove our, our passion for God. And in God says every time, here is a lamb that is about to be sacrificed in its place. I was looking at the um, rich young ruler. We often think, have you, if you put your head around the picture of that rich young ruler coming to Jesus, it says that Jesus was deeply disturbed when the rich young ruler turned around and walked away despite being called to come and follow faith. I was thinking about that. Do you know, I don't think it was the cost of discipleship about having to give his money away that was the core of the issue. For that young man, it was actually that he would have to sacrifice and accept a complete and utter gift from God for the forgiveness of his sins, nothing that he could work for. And that cost he couldn't get his head around because he was full of himself and full of always doing things to make things right. Sure, the cost of discipleship, of giving away all that he had or whatever was going to cost him something, but it, at the core of it, would he be willing to add nothing to what he could do to please God than just accept himself before God? The greatest spiritual... Um, blessing that you and I can ever receive, and we may as well learn it early, is that we are destitute. We have nothing to bring to the table when it comes to the atonement and making ourselves with, right with God. Whether we miss by an inch or a country mile makes no difference. We have to come and accept completely by faith the atonement. The greatest note of triumph that's ever sounded in the world, louder then when Jesus came to earth to be born, the greatest note of triumph that's ever sounded in the ears of a startled universe was the sound of the cross. It is finished. It is finished. I want to finish on two verses. 
One I think I've got um, on overhead, the other one I haven't. Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15. As you go into this Christmas period, I want you to stop and be very thankful for the birth of Jesus. But my goodness, remember what he came to do to change the destiny of the whole world, including your life and mine. Colossians 2, verse 14 and 15. This is the good news. Christ has utterly wiped away the damning evidence of broken laws and commandments which have hung over our heads. He has completely annulled by nailing it over his own head on the cross and then having drawn the sting of all its power that was raged against us, he exposed them, shattered them, emptied and defeated in his glorious and triumphant act. Romans 3 verse 24. This has been reading it in the Passion Translation. I'm not sure if you've caught up, but there's a, there's a new version called the Passion Translation. And it's actually well worth having a look at. Um, it actually tries to take Scripture and just interpret it from the work of the Holy Spirit in us. Now, all the other translations do the same, but um, it's just got a. It's a very refreshing to read the Passion translation that has just newly been published. This is what it says in Romans three verse twenty four, and I want to finish. Yet through His powerful declaration of acquittal. God freely gives away his righteousness. His gift of love and favour now cascades over us. Think of that imagery. Cascading over us, the love and the favour of God. All because Jesus, the anointed one, has liberated us from the guilt, the punishment and the power of sin. The question then becomes, if I get this right, how then should I live? And that's where we'll continue the conversation next time.